If you're new to redemption, you should know that uh, redemption is one church, but uh, as of the first of the year, seven congregations located uh, throughout uh, Arizona, really. We have a congregation in Flagstaff as well, and so uh, we are the Arcadia Expression of uh, Redemption Church, so we are glad that you are here. Uh, We're obviously in Romans chapter 6, our sixth week in Romans 6. We're finally going to wrap it up. It's a very important chapter. As you're turning there, either in your Bible or on your app, um, I want to bring you up to date with a couple of, well, three things that uh, are happening in our community uh, that I think you need to know about. First of all, uh, Redemption Church that's big R redemption, all the redemption churches, but uh, that includes us here at Arcadia, is really committed to seeing new ministries spring up from its members. And so uh, every year what we do is we award several what are called outward-focused grants to people who have put together proposals for ministry that they can do locally on behalf of a redemption. And a good example of that is one that started last year called Global Friends. Global Friends is a ministry that received a grant last year, and their goal is to walk alongside of Afghan refugees here in Phoenix in this uh, community. And in fact, we have somebody uh, in our Arcadia congregation named Sarah Thomas who's deeply involved with this um, ministry, and she has uh, been walking alongside of a, a, a Muslim Afghan woman named Shereen, and uh, they've been uh, getting to know each other over the last several months, and, and uh, Sarah's been helping her. Um, there's, there, Sarah's daughter, Emily, has also been involved in this. In fact, uh, uh, Emily has, has uh, grown especially uh, attached to Shereen and, and just gives her a big hug every time she sees her. Last time this happened, apparently, from what I've been told, Shereen just started to cry because she couldn't believe that there were people here who would just be so willing to, to reach out to her as a refugee. And so that's just one example of the type of ministries that these outward-focused grants um, uh, can benefit and, and help. Uh, there's a number of others as well. And so I would encourage you, if you want to know more about outward-focused grants or in specific, this Global Friends Ministry. You could, if you're interested in that, you can go and, and talk about that as well. But if you're interested in the grant process and how that works, I would encourage you to see uh, Ali Muhammad. He's the guy that's always running around here making sure everything is, is uh, taken care of in, in the morning uh, and greeting people at the, at the front door. Uh, you can talk to him, you can talk to Stephanie, you can talk to Josh Prather, or you can contact us by email, and you'll see the email address up there later, but the email address is also in uh, your bulletin. That's the first thing I wanted to uh, bring up. The second thing is um, we do this twice a year. Uh, Redemption Arcadia is part of something known as the Creighton Coalition of Churches. There's eight or ten churches in this area. Uh, Arcadia sort of overlaps with the Creighton School District in many ways. And uh, most of the schools in the Creighton School District are really under-resourced. And so uh, we get together as churches and help these schools. And twice a year, one in the fall semester, one in the spring semester, we will have a work day. Uh, where we will spend half the day on a Saturday working in the various schools on projects that they just can't get to or don't have the funds to do. Uh, we both uh, contribute money and labor to doing this. And the, the fall workday is coming up this coming Saturday, Saturday, November 9th. Uh, we are going to be meeting at 8.30 at Witten Avenue Bible Church. 
And by 8.45, you will have had a donut and you will be sent on your way to the, the grade school that you're going to be going and working at. That's what you get for your half day. You get a donut, so that's a good deal. So come and have a donut and then uh, go, go work at one of the grade schools, one of the elementary schools here. Uh, and you'll be done by 12, 12.30 uh, in the afternoon if you do that. And then uh, every time we do that, we always follow it up the next Sunday. So this will be Sunday the 10th, a week from today. Uh, we, have, we bring all the churches together and we have a community worship service. And uh, that will be at Camelback Bible Church, and it will start at 6.30 uh, Sunday night. And uh, we're encouraging you. Uh, the Creighton School District has a food pantry, and so we would encourage you that if you come to that worship service that you would bring some, uh, some non-perishable food items for the food pantry as well to help uh, beef that up. So that's the second announcement. And now we've had two really long announcements, and I have one more announcement. So... Take a sip of your, see, I got some people to look back up here. That's good. All right, take a sip of your caffeine and listen to this one because this is, this is really big and I want you to, to really focus in on this. Uh, in two Fridays, so Friday, November 15th, uh, we are in this room at 6 o'clock going to have a one-hour music-only worship service. I said music-only. Can I get an amen? Yeah, okay, see, that was good. You guys are much more enthusiastic about that than the second service, okay, or than the first service. So anyway, it's a, it's a music-only worship service, and here's why we're doing this. Uh, most of you know that especially for a church our size, we have phenomenal music here in Arcadia. Sean Johnson has done a magnificent job. Yeah, absolutely, done a magnificent job of leading it. And a lot of people have said, how come you guys have never done a CD? Well, uh, Sean and his team have been working for the last several months on, on producing a CD. And so on, on, uh, Wednesday, on Monday, Friday night, the 15th, uh, it's, it's kind of like a CD release party. That's what we're going to be doing. Only we're going to be releasing it digitally. If you come that night, we're going to give you a little card that'll tell you where to go on the internet so that you can download all of these songs digitally for free. And then in about another month, we are going to have... <clears throat> about a thousand CDs as well that we are not going to sell, but that we are going to be giving away as gifts. So if you, want CD, if you want hard copy CDs, you just wait another month and you're going to be able to get some CDs from us. And they would make, um, uh, I, we would encourage you to take a couple or three and pass them out to people that you know that might not be aware of Redemption Arcadia or aware of the wonderful uh, music that we have here. And you can pass those out as well. We'll have those uh, later on. But uh, the, the 15th, Friday night the 15th, we're going to give you the card to help you understand how to download it digitally, which is the way most of you will use it anyway in the first place. So uh, those are all the announcements. We'd encourage you to be here in two Friday nights at six o'clock for that. So Romans chapter six, let's just dive right into these last five verses. Since verse six in chapter six, Paul has been personifying sin uh, to personify something in literature is, is a technique that people use in order to make writing more interesting. And he's been personifying sin as a slave master. He, he says that we are slaves of this master known as sin in our unredeemed state, our, our state apart from Jesus Christ, which would be the gospel. Uh, and then, then he goes on to explain that this means that once we are redeemed, and the Greek word that we translate as redeemed literally means to be bought out of, to be purchased out of. 
Once we've been bought out of that slavery, we've been purchased out of being slaves to sin, we have a new master, and that master is Jesus. And He brings us an entirely new life. A life that is rooted in in our justification by Him and in righteousness. We have a a rebirth, it is known. So you've heard the term, you're a born-again Christian. Well, that term is actually, uh, it's biblical, but it's also redundant. If you're a Christian, you have been born again because you are a new creature. You have a a new life. Uh, The late, great John Stott writes of these five verses this paragraph, which will help set the tone for what we're going to talk about the rest of this morning. He says, this section of Romans depicts two completely different lives, lives totally opposed to one another, the life of the old self and the life of the new. They are what Jesus termed the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. Paul calls them two slaveries. By birth, we are slaves to sin. By grace and faith, we have become slaves of God through Jesus Christ. The slavery of sin yields the return of shame, steady moral deterioration, and finally death. The slavery of God yields the precious return of sanctification, or another word for that would be holiness, and finally, eternal life. So we have uh, sin, which brings shame and death, and we have We have Jesus, the gospel, God, who brings us uh, uh, sanctification, holiness, righteousness, and ultimately life. And so I want to reiterate the main point from last week. This was the big idea from last week. There is no such thing as a life without a master. You and I are going to have a master in our lives. We're going to choose who that master is going to be. We are going to choose who we are going to obey. We have a master in our lives. And so Paul is saying, you're going to choose this master and you need to choose correctly. And I know that, I know just from experience and from conversations that I've had, that there are some people who say, you're exactly right, Frank. I do have a master and that master in my life is me. I am my own master. And really what you're saying is you're also saying, I'm my own savior. I can fix everything that I get myself into. I can make my own decisions. I don't need the wisdom of God in order to help me. Well, I hate to offend you this early in a message, but I'm going to go ahead already and do that. If you're one of those people that says, that's right, I'm my own master, you have the worst master you could possibly have. The Old Testament tells us in Jeremiah that the human heart, our, our, our inclinations, our desires, our, our, our corrupted passions apart from God are, are deceitful and wicked beyond all understanding. We can't even figure it out. And if we're listening to ourselves, and we're listening to our heart and we're listening to our feelings, we will ultimately make the wrong decisions and we will suffer death as a result of it. In the New Testament, um, it, is, it is in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, the problem of the unredeemed person, the person who is not in Christ, is they think that their wisdom is the best wisdom that there is, and they look at God's wisdom and they think that is foolishness. But the reality is that God's wisdom is the true wisdom, and our wisdom is what's the foolishness. We are the ones who are being the fools in that situation. And so to trust in ourselves is to trust death. That's ultimately what's going to happen. 
And then I would always ask this question, what happens when you get to that point where you can't save yourself? There's nothing you can do to fix it. You're at the end of your rope. And all of us will someday meet with that time when we can't save ourselves. What do you do then? People who say this all the time, I have faith in myself. I believe in myself. Well, I admire your courage and conviction, but I do not envy you your Savior. I do not. So, we're all going to obey something. The question isn't if we will obey, it's what we will obey. And by the way, here's a great example. This is is a, a, a Bible hero, as a matter of fact, who had this same problem, who wrestled with this same thing. His name was Saul. We read this story in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament where Samuel gets a word from the Lord and he's supposed to anoint Saul as the new and first king of the nation of Israel. Israel's going, we want a king, we want a king, we want to be like other nations. And God finally says, all right, give him Saul. We'll give him Saul. So Samuel goes and says, you're the new king of Israel and I have a command now for you from the Lord. The Lord wants you to do this. Several hundred years ago, when the Israelites were coming up out of Israel, uh, Amalek treated the Israelites very badly. And so I need you to go and attack the Amalekites now. And I want you to attack them in such a way that you destroy all of their assets. You're not to keep any of the spoils of war. None of the booty that you might be able to grab from the war are you able to keep. Kill everything. Don't take anything from this war. And so Saul says, all right. And he takes 210,000 troops and they go and they, they, they attack the Amalekites. And they win. Unfortunately, they decided they're looking around at all of these animals. And, and you have to understand that back then, animals were your biggest assets, okay? We look at other things now. We're looking at, you know, Porsches and, and Lex. What, what's the plural of Lexus? Lexi. We're looking at cars and things like that. And we're going, I think I'll just keep those things. They're looking at these fatted calves and these, and these nice plump lambs, okay? And they're going, you know what? It would be such a waste to get rid of those. And so they keep the very best of the livestock. Well, the Lord goes to Samuel and he says, hey, look, we got a problem here. Um, Saul didn't do what I told him to do. I'm very disappointed. I'm sorry I even made him king. He, he, I made him king and he's already not obeying me. He's already not following me. He's obeying himself instead. So Saul goes and he meets Samuel. I mean, uh, Samuel goes and he meets Saul. And Saul greets Samuel and he says, Blessings to you in the name of the Lord. I have kept the Lord's commandment. And it's a classic biblical line. Many of you know it. Samuel says, Oh yeah? Well then, what is that bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears? And what is the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul tries to justify it all. He says, hey man, we looked around and we found these, we couldn't kill these cows. We couldn't kill these lambs. We saved them so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. So now he's scrambling a little bit. And here's what Samuel says to Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying his voice? It's a rhetorical question and the answer is no. God delights in us following Him, submitting to Him, obeying Him. He would rather we obeyed Him than offer sacrifices to Him. Uh, Samuel continues, Behold, it is better to uh, obey than it is to sacrifice. It's better to listen to the Lord than to have the fat of lambs. For rebellion, Saul, which is what you're engaged in, is the sin of divination. 
And presumption, which you have presumed upon the Lord, is the same as iniquity and idolatry, which are very bad sins. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Now Saul didn't drop dead right then. He was king for several more years after this. But ultimately, God had removed him from that position and already set his eyes on David to be king. And this happened because Saul chose to obey himself and allow himself to be his own master rather than the Lord. The Lord appointed him as king and he couldn't even follow him for five minutes. This is a problem. He would rather submit to his his, uh, desire for power and his passions than to the Lord. And furthermore, this story of Lord also shows that there is a parallel to this slavery that Paul talks about. And that parallel is worship. And the two are related. Our affections, what we will worship, what we will praise. We are going to worship something. Not only are we slaves, but we're also going to worship something. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time and He has put eternity into man's hearts. In other words, we're going we're to pursue something. We're going to desire something. We're going to worship something. In other words, all of us are idolaters. We just hate to hear that, but we are born worshipers. So we're going to affix things in our lives that we're going to submit ourselves to and we're going to hold up and we're going to praise and we are going to worship. Again, John Stott has a word about this as well. He writes this, The first commandment calls us to worship the one true God and Him only. Funny thing is, we do not have to worship the sun, moon, or stars as we imagine those antiquated ancients did in order to break this command. We break this command whenever we give to something or someone other than God Himself the first place place in our thoughts or our affections. It may be some engrossing sport or absorbing hobby, or selfish ambition, or it may be someone that we ad- uh, whom we ad- idolize. We may worship a god of gold or silver in the form of safe investments and a healthy bank balance, or a god of wood and stone in the form of property or possessions. Sin is fundamentally the exaltation of self at the expense of God. What someone wrote of the Englishman is true of every man. He is a self-made man who worships his Creator. So, so you see, we have this issue where we, not only, we are not only slaves, but we're also going to worship something. Peter Kreef, the great theologian, says it this way, the opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry. We are going to worship something. So we're slaves who worship. And we usually worship the wrong thing. That's the dilemma. For all of us. So choose this day who will be be your Lord and what you will worship. And Paul has an answer to all of this. And it's contained in these five verses. The bondage of both the former master and the former God in our lives has been broken and removed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel. And, and, And Jesus did that. God did that through His Son so that we can have the right Lord, the true Lord, the only Lord in our lives that is truly worthy and deserving of our worship, our affections, and our submission. So Paul starts in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Now, now it's very important to understand that Paul is not saying here that he's stepping away from speaking or writing the inspired words of God, but rather that he needs a pedestrian illustration to help us understand this very important theological concept. And he says, because of your natural limitations, I have to do this. F.F. Bruce says, literally what he means is because of the weakness of your flesh. 
In other words, what Paul is saying here is, is this isn't about how God is omniscient and eternal, which He is, while we are mortal and of a lower intellectual capacity than the Lord, which is true. But that's not what's going on here. Rather, we struggle to understand this because we've been corrupted by sin and by lawlessness. So I have to bring you this example in a form that you will be able to understand it. It's a supernatural phenomenon that we're talking about here that I want you to understand. And so he starts this way in verse 19. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. We're going to unpack that phrase right there. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So present your members. It literally means, present, it means to yield yourself or, 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 or give up control of yourselves through your mind, through your body parts, and through your worldview to either sin or to God, to either impurity or righteousness. So Paul again is saying, listen, you're going to do this anyway. You have one choice or the other choice. That's it. We're going, to, we're going to offer ourselves to something or someone. And so he gives us the only choices we have. We're going to be slaves of sin or we're going to be slaves of impurity, which leads to lawlessness and more lawlessness. If we are slaves to God, however, to the Lord, to Jesus Christ, to the gospel, that will lead us to sanctification and to life. And in verse 19, there's this progression in practical terms from impurity to wickedness. Or another word for wickedness is the word the ESV uses, which is lawlessness. From lawlessness to more lawlessness. But there's also a progression in there from righteousness to holiness and to sanctification. And we see that progression elsewhere uh, as well. Um, there's a, uh, in Psalm 1, you can hear this this progression of, of, of sin to lawlessness and consequences, and you can see the progression from righteousness to holiness. Here's, here's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He will submit himself to and obey the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So you can see the progression of righteousness there. But then in verse 4, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteousness, the righteous. In other words, their, their, their consequence is going to be death and it leads to death. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So it's really important to understand that this is just human nature and it's the law of momentum. Let me give you an example of how this works very practically. Uh, There's a a great author. uh, I've read a number of his books. His name is David Augsburger. And in 1985, one of the books that he's written is is called, uh, in 1985, he wrote a book called The Freedom of Forgiveness. And today it is considered a classic book about uh, forgiveness. And and he understands this better than, than most people. And he talks about something known as negative downward spirals of reciprocity. Now think about your interpersonal relationships with other people and some of the conflicts that you've had with those people. And see if this doesn't resonate with you. 
negative downward spirals of reciprocity. So somebody might shoot a little insult to me. I'll decide, well, I'm going to shoot a little insult back, but it's, this, this little insult is going to be just a little bit bigger than their insult. And it hits them. So they decide they're going to send another insult back to me that was bigger than my insult, right? Are you getting this? So then I get that insult, so now I'm going to send one back to them, only it's going to include something about their mother or their spouse. And it just keeps escalating. Negative downward spirals of reciprocity. Here's a metaphor for it. So Jackie and I are in a conflict. We've got a beef with each other. Okay, This is all metaphorical, but it'll help paint a picture for you. So she decides she's going to pull out a paring knife. Well, I go to the drawer and I get a butcher knife. She sees the butcher knife and she goes to the drawer and she gets the 45. I see the 45, I go to the closet, I get the AK-47. She sees the AK-47, she goes to the same closet and she gets a bazooka. I see the bazooka, I go to the garage and I get a tank. She sees the tank and she fires up the missiles, I see the missiles and I fire up the nuke. You see how that works? Negative downward spirals of reciprocity. That's the momentum factor in our sin. And and, and here's what happens. Somebody has to be the one that is going to eat the offense, Jesus on the cross. Somebody has to be the one who's going to eat the offense and stop the negative downward spirals of reciprocity. Somebody has to do that. And we see that in these verses right here. If you're a slave to sin, your impurity is going to lead you to lawlessness, which will lead you to more lawlessness. And the only way you can stop that momentum from going is to embrace Christ and let Him be the Lord of your life. To understand the Gospel and what it's done for you in your life. That's what Paul is talking about here. And so then he says this in verses 20-23 through to unpack his point. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The bondage of the cycle of sin must be broken. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Texas, talks about it this way. He says, sin is like we drive into a cul-de-sac and we start to turn the wheel of our car left and it gets stuck on left and you're just driving around in the cul-de-sac like this. There is a way out. If you could just get that wheel to go right, there is a way out, but we don't do that. We just keep turning left in the cul-de-sac of sin. But Jesus is that way out of that cul-de-sac, and He will lead you to righteousness and sanctification and holiness. And you look in verse 20 and you see that that there there are some synonyms there like sin and impurity. Every time the Bible talks about impurity, it's talking about sin. And when it talks about sin, it's talking about impurity. But there are also antonyms here. Impurity and wickedness are set in contrast to sanctification and holiness. And so the cycle of this is broken by righteousness which comes in Christ Jesus. And let me just say this. 
I'm at the end of chapter 6 now, so I can say it. Have you thought about how many past tense verbs there are in this chapter? Paul is talking about how this has happened to you. This is who you are now. This is your identity. In these verses alone, we are told we were slaves to sin. We have been set free from sin. We have become slaves in God. And Paul says that when we were slaves to sin, we were also free in regard to righteousness. Now, what does that mean? We were free to practice righteousness? No. It's like being caffeine-free. If you're drinking something that is caffeine-free, not only does it not taste as good, but also it means there's no caffeine in it. It's free in regard to caffeine. So when we were slaves to sin, we were free in regard to righteousness. We had no righteousness in us. None whatsoever. It only comes from Jesus And the reason there was no righteousness in us is because our master was sin. Here's how one scholar puts it. When we were slaves to sin, we were free from any expectation to do what is right. And that leads to this question. This is just an offhanded question. Why is it that there are so many Christians who expect non-Christians to behave like Christians? I've never really understood that. Okay? You can hold me to that standard. I confess Christ is my Savior but I shouldn't hold those who don't know Christ to that standard. They don't know. They don't know. And it's a great opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Before I became a Christian, I had no ability to be righteous, so I was free from it because Jesus was not in my life yet. But was that really good for me? No. Look again at verse 21. Paul says that's a problem if you're free from righteousness. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things for which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And now that we have 19, 20, and 21 together, I can bring up two major points that we need to hit. The first one comes out of verse 19. We've already touched on it a little bit. Here it is. Lawlessness, sin, impurity, practicing that, always leads to more sin, more lawlessness, and more impurity. Here you go. Sin is like barrel cactus in some ways. That's a perfect illustration for us because we live in the, in the Southwest. How many of you have ever experienced the joy of barrel cactus spines? Their spines have those little hooks, the fish hooks on the end. So once you get them in there, you know, your first inclination is to start brushing at it and start pushing at it and try to pull it out. And all that does is make it go in deeper. They just dig in deeper at that point. That's exactly what sin does in our life. When we start with sin, and and, and the more we engage with it, the deeper we go with it. Here's a really profound statement. You don't even have to write this down. The more you sin, the more you sin. Really deep. But it's true. The more we sin, the more we sin. This idea of just clicking once on a website... You may only click on that website once, but it's going to lead you to more and deeper websites beyond that. We're never able to stop. We're never able to stop. Especially under our own power. We need that off-ramp of Jesus. It's why we should never listen to the promises of sin, which are pleasure and freedom. They never deliver. Here you go. Sin always, always, always takes us further than we wanted to go, keeps us there longer than we intended to stay, and it costs us way more than we ever uh, thought we would have to pay. 
That's what sin is in our lives. And that leads and sets up our second point perfectly. And here's that second point. It's in verse 21. That which promises freedom and pleasure always brings shame. The promised fruit of sin, which is pleasure and freedom, is actually sin. And and one of the ways this is manifested in our culture today is people who sin and then tell us that we're not only supposed to tolerate their sin, but, but we have to actually advocate for their sin. We have to become champions for their sin. It, it's like when, I know this, this might shock some of you, but I can have a pretty sharp tongue. And, and, and over the years, I've developed the ability to just, I mean, I'm really, I like zingers. And I'm not talking about the hostess zingers. I'm talking about when I zing somebody, okay? And I found that, that I struggle sometimes with my self-control when it comes to my tongue. I read James 3 all the time because I desperately need it. Okay? But here's what often happens with my zingers. I'll lay a really good zinger on somebody and five minutes later, what do I have? I have zinger remorse. I feel shame. I do. I feel shame. And then it gets worse when Jackie finds out about it and she comes who, who has wonderful self-control when it comes to zingers. She's like Meg Ryan in, in, in You've Got Mail. She always thought of really good zingers but never said them, you know? She has the self-control not to say them. She comes to me and she says, all right, pal, you really screwed that one up, didn't you? And here's my response. Here's my response. In my shame, what I'll do is I will try to justify it to Jackie, not only to get her to tolerate the fact that I gave the zinger to somebody, but I will try to explain to her why it was really good that I did it and she should tell everybody else how cool I am. Jackie, advocate for my sins so that I don't have to feel so ashamed. That's what we do. You see, because sin is leading us somewhere. And where it's leading us is not good. And and we get led there because we listen to the lies of sin. Sin always has consequences that we regret. Maybe not right now. I'll be the first to admit that in that season of sin, it's often very fun and pleasurable. But that season doesn't last very long. And so eventually we're going to have shame and guilt and hurt and harm. And we're going to have death in many forms. We experience the death of of our spirituality, our connection with God. We, we, We experience the death of sensitivity. We experience the death of compassion. We experience the death of wisdom and discernment, and we experience the death of perspective. One person says it this way, every time we swallow the poison of sin, we decay a little bit more. Here are a couple more examples. It's kind of like conflict resolution. Years ago, uh, there there are probably three or four primary styles or strategies of conflict resolution that we use. And usually we don't use the right ones, and I am exhibit A. Our favorite style of conflict resolution is avoidance. Amen? That's our favorite, and that never leads anywhere good. So my second favorite style of, of, of conflict resolution has always been competition or competing. And I'm not talking about good, fun, competing where we strive together and both people end up really good at the end. I'm talking about scorched earth, zero-sum game competition where there is a clear winner and there is a clear loser. You know anybody like that in your life? Okay? Their conflict resolution style is to steamroll you. I was really good at that. Really good. And I would win most of the time. And, and, I, and I'd look at what I won and it felt good. The problem is, is that if you resolve conflict that way, there is always a cost. 
And the biggest problem is, is that the win, you experience that win in the moment, but the costs begin to reveal themselves over weeks and months and even years. And I will tell you, every single time that I was able to win a conflict by using that style of conflict resolution, it was great in the moment, but I can tell you, six months later, six weeks later, six years later, I would look back and I would say, it wasn't worth it. If I knew now, and if I knew then what I know now about what that was going to cost me, I would have chosen collaboration or compromise as a way of resolving that conflict. And here you go, there's a point to this. Every one of these I feel shame about. There are experiences of conflict resolution that I have in my life that are 20, 30, even 40 years old that I still feel the sting of shame about today. That's what it means. Here's my other illustration. And this one's really rugged. And I don't want you to get hung up on how rugged it is and say, gee, you maybe shouldn't have said that. I want you to hear how rugged it is because this is exactly where sin takes us. A number of years ago, I went to a funeral that a friend of mine was doing and I was there to kind of help him with the funeral. And it was a non-Christian guy who had died. He was in his 70s. And by all accounts, this guy, first of all, everybody admitted he didn't know Christ. He was not a Christian. But by all accounts, he was just a really bad guy. And I wouldn't line list all the sins for you, but just to give you a little taste, he had five different wives, and he had children from every one of those wives and some women who were never his wives. And virtually all of them showed up for this funeral. And and, and during the funeral... They decided they wanted a time of of, um, remembrances and reflections where people from the audience would get up and say something about the deceased. If you've ever been to a funeral, you may have seen this before. And and, and it's interesting because a buddy of mine, a different friend of mine, Tom Schrader, says it's during that time that if a guy uh, doesn't know Christ, it's always interesting how much faster they're trying to get him into heaven. Talking about what a wonderful person he was. And there were people that were doing this with this guy. And then I'll never forget, one guy, young guy got up, and forgive me, I'm not, I'm, not, um, I'm not up to date on all the military terms and everything. I believe he was a Marine, and he was in, had to have been his best dress blues uniform. Very nice looking guy, and he got up and he said, this is my father, really glad my father was in my life because he was a wonderful example. He was the example of the man I did not want to become, And I am who I am today because I did not follow His ways. And He sat down. This is where sin will lead us. Sin leads us to a destination. It is a direction. And there are consequences to it. And it gives us legacy as well. Andy Stanley says it this way, direction, not intention, determines our destination. All of us have really good intentions of our sin. Our intentions are our self and, and pleasure and freedom. But our intentions don't lead us anywhere. It is, our, it is our, our, our desires and our direction that take us somewhere, and that is sin. It backfires and it takes us to pain and death. There is in these verses, especially in verse 21, a shadow of the latter part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lists the series of of contrasts. And they're just two things. Just two things. 
You have the wide gate and the narrow gate. You have the wide road or the wide way that leads to destruction and many are on it, or the narrow road and the narrow way that few are on it that leads to life and righteousness. You have the two different trees and the two different fruit. You have the two different houses. And you have the two different foundations on which those two houses stand. Are you going to build your house on the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ? Or are you going to build your rock, your, your house on the sand of sin that's going to wash away and you along with it to death? It's the same thing with Psalm 1. That psalm that I read earlier. The psalm presents two kinds of people. That's all there are in this world. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. The righteous and the wicked. The problem is in our culture, we mostly disregard this teaching because we bristle at either or. We want options. We want gray areas. We want alternatives. We want a shopping mall on morality. We want to be able to determine our own choices. We want something in between. We want another alternative that doesn't have the cost of the first two alternatives that Jesus presents to us. And the cost is either shame and death or it is life. We don't, we don't want that. We don't want sanctification. We don't want holiness. We don't want that as a cost. And so we start looking for something else. And that's why these five verses in chapter 6 can make many of us so anxious. This is hard for us. Many of us say that we want our spiritual questions answered, but when Jesus answers them, He answers them either or. We don't like that answer, and so we go looking for something else, and that is a fool's search to go looking for something else. So what Paul reminds us about is in verse 22. He says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become the slaves of God, the fruit you get, The fruit leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul is calling on us to compare the fruit of the two ways. The fruit. And in both he says, look, the fruit at the end is what you got to kind of keep your eyes on because that's the eternal fruit. And one one of the fruits is death and one of them is life. But also, he says in this passage, that there's also a, a, a temporal fruit, a local fruit, a fruit that we can enjoy now, and that is holiness and sanctification. And the characteristics of holiness and sanctification are all the things that we've been talking about in, in chapters 5 and 6. Joy, assurance, standing in the grace of God, discernment, peace, peace not only with God, but peace of mind and peace of soul and direction. And that leads us to the culminating verse in chapter 6, verse 23, which many of us know so well. And it's so important. Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, compare the fruit, man. And the fact is, there's a a wage. A wage. A payment. You're going to get paid something for remaining in sin. Or, you can receive the free gift that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that word wages in the Greek, apsonia, literally means that day's ration for food or money. That day's, that day's allotment of food or money. So when people, when people heard the word wages, they were thinking of it in terms of that's our sustenance. That's how we survive. That's how we have life. And the, and the irony here is that the way Paul puts it is the wages of sin is death. Death is decidedly anti-life. 
It's decidedly opposite of sustenance. It's decidedly contrary to survival. Paul says if you're not in Christ, everything you're doing is working for death. That's your wage. And that spiritual death is, it, that death is spiritual. It's, it's the inability to spiritually discern and see the wisdom and the truth of God. It's also a, a lack of understanding about reality. And ultimately, that death is the eternal separation that you and I will experience from God apart from Christ. And that is known as hell. Sometimes people ask me, so what is hell like? Well, as far as I know, it is the complete and total absence of God. I can't think of anything worse. It must be hell. That's what hell is and that's what death is. And notice the consistency that Paul has here. The fruit is death. The wage is death. The consequence is death. But, but, Jesus is the free gift. He's the undeserved gift. There's no wage in Jesus. Just blessing. He can't pay you anything because you didn't do anything for it. He just comes out of love and gives us this free gift. He gives us the blessing of being His adopted child. And you see that Jesus is, is life now and forget forever. It's, it's righteousness now and forever. We are justified now and forever. We are redeemed now and forever. We're sanctified now and forever. And it's not just that, that, that it's a gift. There's a modifier for the word gift. It's a free gift. It means that somebody had to pay for it. We talk about getting stuff free all the time. You understand that when you get something for free, somebody had to pay for it. Well, this free gift of eternal life was paid for Jesus at the cross. And ironically, what he experienced and suffered at the cross was shame and death. So he experienced the shame and the death for us so that we could have the free gift of eternal life. It is a gift And it is free to us, but He paid for it, so we should value it. This is a huge deal. The old slave master sin pays us a wage, death. But our new slave master, Jesus, gives us a gift, blessing, life. He gives us what cannot be earned. There may be some of you here today, you have not come to Christ yet and opened your heart in your mind to Him and said, all right, I'm done with the old slave master. It's time to submit myself to and obey the new slave master, Jesus. If that's you today, if God by His His Holy Spirit is working on you and opening your heart and your eyes, opening your mind, your ears, and your soul to the truth of the Gospel, we would encourage you during this time of reflection that we're getting ready to go into to find somebody to talk to about it. Take your first communion today. If you want to wait until the end of the service, that's fine too. We'll have some people up here. I'll be at the door like I always am. You can find Sean. You can find the other Sean or the other Sean. You can find one of the Seans and talk to them. We would love to be able to talk to you about this. This is really important. It's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And I pray that God would open your eyes to it. Let me pray. Sean will come up and lead us in our time of response. God, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your wisdom. Thank You for the life of Your Son who gives us our life. Give us the courage to embrace that. To to submit ourselves to Him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.